You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Mick Eid, journalist, lives in Geelong. Um, with a background, if you wonder about my accent, I've just come back from Denmark actually two days ago um, and used to live there most of my life. Moved to Geelong seven years ago. In 2016, we were just a little group of people, Melbourne, Adelaide, Geelong, talking about the graph and how it was coming up close to 1.5 degree, actually getting over the, the point where it shouldn't go. And we thought, this is crazy. Why isn't this headline news? Nobody's talking about it. We can't continue talking about climate change. This is a climate emergency. And we were talking with Phil and others who had been saying that for a decade. And we thought, we have to do something. And then we started a petition. The petition was directed to the federal government in Canberra. And we, we call it the Climate Emergency Declaration, because we wanted the government to declare a climate emergency. We are in a hurry now. We can't just fiddle around with all these small campaigns here and there. We needed, so, we needed something big, and we used this quote from Winston Churchill as our, as our headline or, or a slogan or something. It's no use saying we're doing our best. You've got to succeed in doing what's necessary. And as we've heard many times today and generally, what's necessary is that we get down to zero carbon. So after a whole year of trying to get signatures, collecting them online and on paper and so on, we came close to 20,000 signatures, and that was hard work. And a lot of people we talked to didn't like that we talked about an emergency. That's not a good word. But uh, we continued and handed over the 20,000 signatures we had collected when we had a a bit of a, a front figure. Uh, Steve Purcellt took his kayak all the way down from uh, along the coast up from uh, Byron Bay down to Canberra and handed over these uh, petitions to some politicians. John Howard was there. Uh, Adam Band was there. And in a way, that could have been the end of that story. Failure. Because obviously nothing happened in government. Why would they do something as big as what we were asking for? Because 20,000 people had signed this uh, petition. But some interesting things happened on the side. One, in Derbyn, there was a discussion and a bit of a talk. And then, as we heard yesterday, Derbyn was the first council in the world that thought, well, maybe if the government isn't doing it, the federal government, what if a local government does it, declares a climate emergency? And that happened in December 2016. That was not something sort of that was planned in, in our campaign as such, but it, it happened and it turned out to be much more significant. You, I'm sure most of you know the story now that we have 1,350 councils that have declared a climate emergency and many more coming, I am sure. At the same time, the year after, actually two years after, we had little Greta Thunberg, 15 years old at the time, who sat in front of the Swedish parliament, starting her school strike movement, as it has become. And they also looked at this word, the climate emergency, and took it in and started also knocking the doors at councils and helping with this campaign. I think that has been a significant push for the campaign, that young people, 14, 15, 16 years old, have been standing in these councils and bringing the tears out in, in the eyes of the councillors. So 
A third group has been also playing a big role in this, and that's started in, in the UK also in 2018, where the Extinction Rebellion group uh, started putting it as their first demand of three demands that the government must declare a climate and biodiversity emergency. And this meant that in just months we went from zero to many, many hundreds of, of councils. Now there's 400 councils in the UK that, has de that have declared a, a climate emergency. Thanks very much to Extinction Rebellion. So these three, three movements are, are uh, yeah, movements in a way that I have mentioned, the councils and the youth and Extinction Rebellion. We have represented here today in the council. And uh, I think I'll uh, introduce you one by one. And we'll just start with Bryony. So uh, Bryony uh, has been a climate emergency candidate in several elections by now and was also part of this uh, group called CASE. CASE stands for the Council and Community Action in the Climate Emergency, and, and a significant player in this whole campaign, together with uh, your husband. So, uh, Bryony, mm -hmm. the first five years are yours? Five minutes? Yeah. Not years. <laughs> Hi, so I just want to talk about how we get our broken government to not only declare a climate emergency, we've seen that it's very easy for governments to declare a climate emergency, but actually follow through with the mobilisation. Um, and this is what we're up against. So I want to talk about three strategies very quickly. Councils mobilising, um, handing the government the policies. Government's broken, bureaucracies are broken. They, they, they really can't innovate and running climate emergency candidates. So councils can lead the way towards mobilising. We've seen this huge growth, 1,300 um, councils and uh, national governments declaring, but when they don't do anything afterwards, it sort of reinforces the expectation that these people want us to believe, and that's that it can't change. You can't change it. So we need to break that by, sorry. Sorry. We need to break that by getting a council to actually mobilise, to act like the house is on fire, to go through the change management process that is required for everyone to understand what they're supposed to be doing at the executive level, at the CEO level, and at the staff level, to restructure so decisions are made differently, to restructure though that, so that the climate emergency is the number one priority. That's what mobilisation looks like. That's what it looks like in the, at, a, at a local government level, at a state government level, and at a federal government level with some nuances. And of course, state and federal governments have the big policy and economic levers that local governments don't have. But we need to demonstrate that, yes, it is possible. So at CASE, we have a checklist. That's my grassroots organisation I have with my partner. We have a checklist of what a, a council mobilising looks like, and we're working with some councils at the moment to get one or two of them to actually follow through with it. We have two commitments at the moment. Once we get three and four, we'll start seeing that 
exponential, you know, we'll see that slow but then exponential growth, hopefully, of councils around the world doing it. So that will be the second wave following. It will be, first was the declaration wave, next will be the mobilisation wave. Um, on our website, caseonline.org, you can find that checklist and all other resources. If you think your council has what it takes, come and talk to me. So, secondly, we hand the policy, the polys, the policies. So, they are broken. I, from first-hand experience, I can tell you that governments just don't want to ha have what it takes to produce, it's, to produce what is needed the incredible work that needs to be done. Um, one of the most inspiring conversations I've had this weekend is with Eitan from Beyond Zero Emissions. And he said, just recently, um, the last plan Beyond Zero Emissions did was for the Northern Territory. And they said, this is your transition to renewables, away from fracking. And they gave it to the Northern Territory government, who then put their ALP, Northern Territory ALP stamp on it, said, this is our policy. And now they're, now they're now campaigning for it. Of course, they didn't ban fracking, but this is their transition plan. And they honestly, before BZE had done that work for them, had no idea, they really thought fracking was their future, that that was it. That, that's the kind of, that's the level of imagination you are talking about in government. Um, but it's not, so this, is, this slide is Philip Sutton here, and you've seen him on the main stage and so on. Philip has written, he's a policy wonk. He's written many policies, including the, um, the Climate Emergency and Mobilisation Act. That's what we want to get them to pass. That's for the federal government to pass. He's written the No More Bad Investments Act. He's, and, and some others might have had a hand in that. Um, he's also working. He wants you know, people to come and help him, other policy wonks to come and help write this stuff. We've also got all the work coming out of Beyond Zero Emissions. We, there's a whole list of areas that a climate emergency mobilisation would impact, and we need policies for those. We need to say, no, you don't do this, you do this. We need to have that ready. That's the vision. Um, I think that's all I wanted to say there. And third strategy, we run climate emergency candidates. Parliament is broken. We need climate emergency people there. We need people that are prioritised, not just saying, oh yeah, I believe in the climate emergency. We need them to prioritise the climate emergency. We've seen what a difference just having um, two independents in there who have said, I'm here, you know, my difference is climate. That's sort of, that really what they campaigned on. And we've seen the difference, how that has shifted the conversation a bit. We have, um, when we have preferential voting in Australia. Most Australians don't understand preferential voting. Once they do understand how preferential voting works, the major parties will take it away from us because they know that it diminishes their chances of getting seats. When you run as a climate emergency candidate, you say, this is my priority, this is what I'm talking about. There are very many important things, but they all pale in comparison to this and without a climate emergency or response and a safe climate, we don't have the rest of it anyway. That's their message. And um, you have, when you run as a candidate, because of preferential voting, you talk to all the other candidates because they want to know where you're going to preference them. And you say, well, what are your climate policies? You preference them on climate. 
you also you're in the public forums holding them to account on their climate policy. So it's very powerful to run as a climate emergency candidate in Australia. We have a registered climate emergency party. It's called Save Our One Planet Alliance at the moment. We've, we've joined with a, um, a regional party, um, but we want to, we'll find a more catchy name. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm out, Anna, yeah. Our next speaker will be Brad Pettit who is uh, a mayor. 10 years you've been a mayor for the port city of Fremantle in Western Australia. And prior to that, you were the dean of the School of Sustainability at Murdoch University. Welcome. Thank you. Very nice to be here. And I'm, I'm a bit of a late ringing, but it's a real honor to be up here and um, sharing the stage with everyone. And as part of a, I think you'd have agreed, it's been a pretty extraordinary event. Um, I was going to bring a bit of a, just a bit of a West Australian perspective and story um, to this and it's one where I, I do start with this photo because that's exactly where it started. Um, so Fremantle declared a climate emergency in May last year and I think it was actually, we've been talking about it as a council for some time, I mean watching Darabin, watching others, um, being encouraged by the, by, the, by, by the right people but I think look there was, there was a real nervousness around this and um, Fremantle is the council that um, does like to lead but also has been, we do get regularly beaten up, I just thought I'd show, show this to give you some examples of things that we like to get beaten up about, um, which are mostly around our leadership in the environmental space and also th um, things like Australia Day. And so council was a little bit gun shy at, at, at this point. But what, but what really, I think, got us moving and, and started to change that conversation was, um, interestingly, our Youth Advisory Council um, got together and one of the very clearly said at their first meeting what they wanted us to do was get serious about the climate emergency. And that was an excellent basis on which we felt very confident taking it to the council and knowing we would have support. So that this was the... Uh, they all came along and spoke passionately and articulately around why this was so, what was so important. Um, and that um, is a really, I think, great foundation on which it actually now is shifting the conversation. So we're gonna, th that will then grow into um, some, some events going forward in, in, in which we can actually strengthen that. And I guess what I wanted to then just now show is obviously, give you, in terms of the Dabra context, that's important because we all know Australia, we've all seen this graph many times before, how Australia's performing badly. But this is how WA's performing, far worse. We, we didn't even get our emissions to go down during the carbon tax, pretty, very much at all. And we have some of the highest per capita emissions in, in the country. And often there's this joke around if mayors rule the world, actually, which is an American book, and if, if it was an Australian book, it would say if local communities rule the world, we would actually start to see action in this space. Because we are feeling the climate impacts locally, and this is my local beach um, and a beach called Port Beach for those of you who know who know this part of the world in which we almost as you can see lost cafes and toilets into the ocean last winter in fact we've had like the two in fact last two winter storms have almost eroded those so it's very real so but to be hopeful there are good things happening and I want to be really clear Fremantle has a long long way to go on this journey and I think there is a real challenge coming out of this and I feel challenged that we're not doing enough 
but maybe I can just quickly share with you in the next two minutes some of the quick things we are doing. So there are, we've, we do have a map in terms of reading out, reaching um, our 100% renewable energy target by 2025. Obviously energy efficiency, so geothermal heat pumps. We're building a new council building. I actually do think it might be, it'll be certainly be a zero carbon building um, and it's, that will be completed in, in October. Um, and will, across the year, produce as much energy as it uses, which is, for a building of this size, is, is, is great. Um, and great innovation projects in our suburbs around a whole bunch of housing that's doing similar things um, with batteries, solar, and actually, I think, really showing a really great way forward. And um, this one is currently under construction, as you can see, but has a very, the first very large community battery in our side of the world. These are exciting things with WA, I say, because WA is a little bit, we are, there's a joke about WA, which it stands for wait a while. We like to wait until everyone else has done something first, but we are seeing these changes largely driven by amazing technological change. Even things like streetlights take longer, but, but, but those things you can see are actually all part of that clear trajectory as we get there. Um, one of the projects I really like that we've done, and Darabin's inspired us to take this to the next level, but we started with all our community groups and sports clubs and put um, PV on all their roofs because they often struggle financially and pay big power bills. And, and so we basically went, we went through all of those in, in the last, last 12 months, putting solar on their roofs, bring down their power bills, but also of course bring down their emissions as well. But the big one for us, which has been a really challenging one, which we still are very, very close to, to, to landing, um, is a inner urban solar farm. So we've got an old tip, tip site just to the south of Frio, looks like that. Um, it's highly contaminated and it's just fenced off and you can't do anything with it. So the plan is that we can turn this into a five megawatt solar farm that will pretty well power our city. Um, and that's pretty exciting that we can actually start to do that locally. It's so contaminated you can't even drill into it, so they've got to like, sit on top. And that's been part of the, part of the challenges. But um, for me, those kinds of things are really exciting. And then more ambitiously, we reckon our port should also be a wind farm. And the only block to that is our state government, but we are working on that to the best of our ability. So there is a real sense around, actually these things are entirely possible. And I'll jump through transport and I've used up my time already, but pushing very hard for investing in that kind of stuff as well. Because like many other councils, right about 20% of our emissions come from transport. In fact, this is, anyone hasn't seen trackless trams? They're not lucky enough to live in Melbourne where you already have trams. Um, this is one we're seriously looking at installing. And finally, this is one I do quite like, because it's just happened the last couple of months. We've got our first electric rubbish truck. And we get lots more complaints now because people don't get to get, get their bins out because they can't hear the rubbish truck coming. Um, <laughs> but every bit of a sustainability rainbow has a downside. So thank you very much. Let's turn to the youth, and uh, if you would come over here, Sel Whiting, he's uh, come all the way from Adelaide, is that right? Yeah. And uh, he's a year 10 student. Thank you very much. Hi everyone, I'm Zell, I'm 14, and I'm a climate emergency campaigner from Adelaide. I started off as a founding member and key organiser of School Strike for Climate in South Australia, before I moved to the international organising team for Fridays for Future. I found out about climate emergency declarations, I call them CEDs, in February 2019 when Sedamia approached me to help lobby the city of Adelaide to declare. It appealed to me because I could see it was a stepping stone forward from the strikes. The strikes were the alarm, CEDs are the first response actions. 
and I'd read enough, and I'd read enough of what was happening to the planet to know that we needed action. At this time, no capital city in Australia had declared a climate emergency, so we organised a handful of people from each state and territory and made it into a competition. Where would declare first? At the same time, I was talking to people in Fridays for Future about CEDs. We started creating teams everywhere. Paris, Milan, New York, New Zealand, Canada, Mexico, and even Bangladesh. We all exchanged information of what was working and what hadn't worked, so we could fine-tune what we were doing. For example, at the very beginning, Jacinda Ardern thought we were talking about a state of emergency, which is very different. So I wrote to her and explained how a climate emergency actually worked. And the New Zealand team then followed up with their climate change minister. <sighs> oh, sorry. Yep. These groups are really empowering. They are not just exclusively kids or adults. They are intergenerational and across all levels of society. We have lawyers from Sweden, scientists from Finland, farmers from Pakistan, indigenous people from Brazil, Australia, Canada, and even Standing Rock in the United States. We have teachers from Italy, we have kids, grandparents, and politicians all working together. One of, the, one of the keys to our success is the experts who wrote up CED, and some of them were even based in Australia, and some of these guys are even here today. One of the main areas I've been working on in the last year has been school CEDs. Inspired from a comment I read on Facebook, a bunch of us worked together to create a school CED program. Teachers for Future Italy picked it up in May, and by November, the Italian government was talking about introducing climate classes. But don't get too excited. Just in the last month, it's come to light that the Italian, New Zealand, and even the New South Wales Education Department are trying to greenwash these initiatives and are only talking about adaptation. Adaptation is the new language of denialists. Adaptation is not a solution to prevent mass extinction, which is what we are facing. Yesterday, I helped facilitate a workshop here for about 75 students to get a CED up and happening in Australian schools. Like the rest of society, we have the strategies for this idea. Installing solar panels and Stephanie Alexander food gardens, using a cozier as a search engine that'll plant trees while students are researching essays. We created a huge list of solutions in just two hours, but, but like the rest of us society, what we don't have is political will. The school kids yesterday knew straight away who has the most power in their schools, who were their allies, and what were the challenges to get a CED up and happening. We need teachers to help, we need teachers' help, and teachers need parents' help. The State Education Department need to know that adaption, sorry, the State Education Department needs to know that adaptation isn't going to cut it. Here's an example. Schools currently have electricity bills around $1,500 per month. Buying renewable electricity is good, but having solar is better. But under the current model we have, the initial layout cost out of the individual school infrastructure budget while the bills are paid through the education department. So, who is laying out the cost and who benefits from this? We need a fund set up so schools can borrow money for solar and pay off uh, can borrow money for solar panel installation and pay it off over time. We need kids and parents and schools working together to put pressure on state and federal education departments. We need kids and parents to say we only want healthy, ethical and preferably local food supplied in our canteens. The current system, even in school canteens, is profit first. This way of thinking and doing is going to kill us. 
You've all heard scientists talking at this event and in the media. How do you think food is going to grow with fires, droughts and floods? The climate emergency is a health emergency. We are what we are facing is an abrupt climate collapse. And my question is, with the lack of mobilisation on the scale we need, who can guarantee I'm going to live until 20 or the 4 million Australians who are under the age of 14? Thank you. Speaking of the disruption, someone who must take responsibility for some disruption in the streets of Melbourne and other places here in Australia is Jane Morton, who's a bit of a, a, bit of a pioneer. Uh, it was uh, Jane and me and a couple of others who started this uh, climate emergency declaration petition back in 2016. But then Jane branched out and uh, decided to help bring Extinction Rebellion here to Australia. So let's hear what you have to say. Someone going to give me a warning at about hmm? four minutes? Are you going to give me a warning or do I okay. have to keep my own time? Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, it has been an amazing campaign with the councils, but I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. Um, when we got together via some group phone calls, just after the reef had bleached. Uh, it was easy we, we, to be clear that the thing that we needed was to declare a climate emergency. Um, we've been talking about emergency for all these years. We've been watching the climate mobilisation in the US. We've been watching them call for people to pledge to mobilise at World War II scale and going, oh, pledge to mobilise at World War II scale. That's just not going to really be Australian messaging. And then when the reef bleached, Suddenly, I think it was Margaret in South Australia, she said, we've got to declare an emergency. That's what we do in Australia. There's a drought, we declare a drought. There's a flood, we declare an emergency. There's a fire, we declare an emergency. It means everyone gets together and helps and we make it first priority till we fix it. Um, right from the moment we started doing that, I think, um, going around, in fact, up and down the Sustainable Living Festival that first year in 2016, um, Ordinary people would go, yes, of course it's an emergency. Yes, of course declare an emergency. Why is the government not doing anything? In fact, the only, the only people we found in the Sustainable Living Festival 2016 that didn't want to sign were NGOs who'd been indoctrinated with the view that fear doesn't work and that we mustn't use this strong language. In the public, it worked straight away. Um, so then we had to come up with a plan. Like I think right from the start, I was trying to think, well, this is not going to be just a petition. You can't just have a petition to declare an emergency. Um, I was looking at a thing that I called the NDIS strategy, because how they got the NDIS was they went to the backbenches of Labor, the backbenches of the Liberals, the backbenches of the Nationals, not such a problem with the Greens, and they got the backbench on board and then they pounced on the leaders. So we came up with this idea that we'd work from the outskirts of the parties in towards the centre and we'd use trusted messengers. So we had to find trusted messengers for all the different parties. As part of this, when the council elections rolled around, we thought, oh, we'll get the council candidates to say they're on board with declaring a climate emergency because that'll help, you know, get into all those parties. And so we tried it in Darabin. And of course, you know, people will sign up to just about anything during an election campaign. We expected to get a few. We didn't expect to get as many as we got. We ended up with half the candidates going, yes, I support the declaration of a climate emergency. That's um, 
Trent McCarthy, he was an easy one from the Greens. Um, but the thing that did surprise us, well, there was first of all that we did get half, that by the time um, the results came in, we had seven out of nine of the elected um, councillors had supported it. And the very first council meeting, without more ado, they just passed this declaration. Well, well, actually, no, with a little bit of help in the car park, I believe. <laughs> There's a little bit of help. But um, it was quite surprising. And it seemed as though we'd kicked off something. And, and as Bryony said, like, then it was hard, you know, get the next one. Then it was hard, get the next one. After a while, somehow, again, I think with help of Bryony and Adrian, it went round the world. But we didn't really quite know that's what was going to happen. Similarly, you know, we started a, a, a campaign of getting... Um, state and federal candidates to hold their placard. That's Jed Carney. We pounced on her at the end of a candidates forum um, while she was facing off in, against the Greens in a very close election. She said that she'd support the declaration of a climate emergency. I don't think she had any idea at the start what she really was signing on to. But we sat with her hour after hour until I think she did understand. She, she said her main issue was refugees. We said, look, there will be refugees like you would not believe if we let this climate emergency play out. And eventually she got it. Um, I, was not, I was a Jed sceptic, I've become a Jed um, supporter. One of the things she did was um, she gave my climate emergency booklet, don't mention the emergency, to every member of Shadow Cabinet in Labor. She also hosted me for two days to go around the back corridors of Parliament, talking to every parliamentarian that I could get my hands on. She had to have a staff member assigned to me to get that done. Okay, so first of my four points is we don't actually know what will work. Let's just try everything. We've got to, we shouldn't be waiting for next election. We've got to do everything we can. We've got to do it simultaneously. We've got to be big. We've got to be bold. We've got to seize the moment. And it's definitely going to involve telling the truth. It's definitely going to involve saying how bad things are. It's going to definitely involve saying that we risk collapse, that we risk billions of deaths. We have to say climate emergency, climate and ecological emergency, but we have to say that we're risking collapse because that's the thing that brings people together. We're in this together because it's coming for us. It's not just, oh, the poor people are going to be die dying and we're going to be fine. I mean, that's what's happening sort of now. But in the end, it's coming for us as well. The point of no return is close, maybe past, hopefully not. Um, we are in this together. So how do you tell the truth as an ordinary person? Well, postering is good. Postering a strong message, like, what do you think of that one? Hate Extinction Rebellion, you should try actual extinction. <laughs> Bold. We don't want climate action now. We want strong action to save us. We have to fix democracy. Like Bryony's first slide shows us, let's not pretend that we just had a climate election. We had an election that was bought by vested interests. Unless we fix democracy, we're going nowhere. At the local level, we have a great opportunity, especially with councils that have declared to bring in either citizens' assembly, which is randomly selected groups of people who deliberate on things like a jury, or people's assembly, just interested people who deliberate. If we have the voice of the people being heard, and if people know that we're risking the collapse of human civilization and billions of deaths, they will want action, they will insist on action. If we can fix democracy or, and preserve what we've got left at our local level, that is 
partly what's going to drive this process. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, our council declared and they did nothing. Well, declaring is like a platform. Then you stand on the platform to get more. You get them to declare, you get them to introduce the People's Assembly or various other deliberative mechanisms where people get together in a non-combative, thoughtful way to think about what needs to happen. And then you move them to the next step. Oh, and we've got to fight single member wards, by the way. That's a horrible anti-democratic step just about to go through the upper house. Um, but yes, work with your council, work with your politicians. But the main thing is, I think it's time to act as though the truth is real. It's time to actually rebel. That's Carolyn Danaher outside Sarah Henderson's office being a persistent presence and eventually getting arrested. And Sarah Henderson lost. That's me spray painting chalk. It's not even illegal. It's so much fun. <laughs> there you go. So the idea is with this session to have a look at what next? What next for this movement that you've heard about? You've heard a little bit about the history. And um, this was what it looked like in 2016, the ad that we put in the age, where we got 24 distinguished Australians to sign in support of the words that were written there. Um, it took us a year to get 20,000 signatures. Then two years down the track, when people were starting to talk about this. Another petition was started, an actually official e-petition at the parliament, which was a little bit more official than ours. We just did it on paper and a bit on a website and handed it over like that, which was not the proper way to do things. This was done in the proper way. And what was surprising to me here and felt great was that in less than a month, 400,000 Australians had signed that petition. Wow, that was what we dreamt about, and now it was reality. A few years down the track. So what's gonna happen with that petition? We don't know yet. Um, I talked yesterday with Adam Bant and asked him, and he says, it's not forgotten. There's things going to happen in the next, and he said, half year. So things don't move that quickly. Uh, was that it? Okay. So let's have a little bit of a, a just a comment on, on your perspectives on the idea that the original idea with this position, which was to get Parliament to declare a climate emergency here in Australia for us as a nation. What will it take? How do we get there? You, you want to start? Well, I, I think it takes rebellion. I mean, the important thing about that petition with the 400,000 signatures, it was right after the April Rebellion, when Extinction Rebellion had been in the news for a week, pretty much every day. Um, the other thing that happened straight after the April Rebellion is that Labor, who'd been talking about backtracking from climate action because they were so traumatised by the election loss, um, raced to beat the Greens to put a motion to the Parliament to declare a climate emergency. Unimaginable. So I think, we, you know, by all means, you know, keep petitions going, keep lobbying going, keep ordinary campaigns going. But in the end, I think it's actually civil disobedience that shows that we are serious. So. 
Um, I agree with Jane uh, as well. I think um, mass, like a mass awareness of um, climate change is really important. Um, I think at the moment we all can, wait, can you all hear me? Is this on? Um, doesn't sound like it. Um, uh, we all need to. Um, we all need to know that climate change is something that if our politicians are going to be obstinate, we have to start off by working with students, which is what lots of youth movements are doing really fantastically, adults, which is what XR is doing really fantastically, and then other groups like Teachers for the Environment, Doctors for the Environment, and mobilise all of society, and then we need to show politicians that their game, that their act is not going to last forever. And, and Brad, you speak, f if you are in government, so, so what's your position on, do you have an influence in terms of pushing upwards towards the federal government? I mean, could a, could a council send a letter up there or do something? And could more councils together do something? I think, yes, you can. Now, the question is, it's a really good question. Is there a, um, can you hear? Yeah, it is. Okay. Um, and so it is really a question of how you do that. And I th I'm very much of, of the sense of it's going to require some of that more conventional upward pressure, but it's beautifully complemented by the by the less conventional. If, you, if that makes sense, I think this is going to it's going to be one of those things that's going to take different actions at different levels and different ways to actually see it get over that, that threshold point. Because unfortunately, it is the federal government and some and some state governments, not all, who are the last holdouts. I think um, we are seeing it, which is wonderful to see this groundswell, but yeah, but we need that because they're the ones who can ultimately make some of those big policy decisions that really get this, this country back on track. Mm -hmm. And Brioni? Yeah, um, the, the same way we, there's not just one thing we need to do to reverse global warming and restore a safe climate, there's everything. We need to do everything all at once. We, the campaigning needs to be everything all at once to, to hit all the notes. Um, but I will say the, the, it's great that in the past, someone who wanted to get into campaigning was kind of, it was kind of limited. But with, with the civil disobedience, you know, we, we've been struggling along with a few things for years and then suddenly people are calling us and going, no, I don't want to do admin, I just want to get arrested, you know. So... <laughs> And it's suddenly there's, there's just vehicles for everyone to be empowered and, and that's part of the movement, that they can be doing something and take ownership and, and so on. Yeah. And it will be ground up. It's not going to be top down. It's going to be ground up. You know. mm. So it's going to be ground up. There's going to be a bit of civil disobedience in it and there's going to be some young faces in the crowd. But I'm going to be a little bit more pushy here because... We've had two days of conference and we would like to leave with the feeling that we have ideas, we have solutions. So, and I, I know this is a big ask, but, but among this kaleidoscope of possibilities, and as you said, there will be many different things probably that will influence a government to do something. But then again, what will be the trigger? Because there is always one thing that does a little bit more than many others. So if I was to ask you, what do you think could, could trigger this? Is it another petition? No. We've had enough petitions, or what? I think escalating civil disobedience is one. <laughs> um, in, the, in the UK, they're 
plan was always to go to the capital, shut it down for as long as possible, and be where they're looking the politicians in the eye. And they did. They shut down London for 11 days and 11 nights, and the government came and negotiated with them, and then the UK declared a climate emergency. Only symbolic, but still, big step. Um, in Australia, it's very hard, because we've got a capital city that's far away from where most of us live, and it's not a business centre as such. But I think what we're going to do in the May Rebellion is we're going to have big actions in our big capital cities, second, third, fourth, fifth, early May. And then when budget week comes, 12th, 13th, 14th, we're going to go to Canberra for budget week. Uh, we actually also got three days on the Murdoch Empire linked in with our friends in US and UK. So I think we have to take it on all levels. We have to address the media. We have to go to Canberra and we have to work locally. And between us, we'll trigger it. Um, I can see why Mick says this is a, such, a, such a hard question because you would have thought that catastrophic bushfires would be a trigger. You would have thought that catastrophic floods would be a trigger. Um, but it's not. And personally, I know that this might sound really um, depressing for people, but I think that um, a what the trigger for the government is going to be is violence, whether it's not against them but against other people. Um, I think we've seen that in the media, um, firefighters being like really harsh with words. Um, and I think that's made a really, a really big impact in the media. Um, and I think that stuff needs to escalate, um, whether it be civil disobedience or whether it be, um, like, sorry, civil disobedience at Parliament House or at places of government, member of Parliament's offices. Um, but um, eventually, and that they might be very soon, um, food's going to be very hard to grow, water's going to be very hard to obtain. And um, yeah, we're going to see a lot of problems, and I think it is going to lead to violence, and I think that will be a final trigger for the government. Um, the, the reframing to the majority of the population, but you know, the Australia Institute has shown that the majority of Australians, well, over 60%, think the government needs to declare and mobilise like World War, World War II. So we know that those, that exists. We know our government is broken because there are still holdouts. There's that, you know, politi um, political identification. Yeah, I think this, but I, I've always voted blue or I've always voted red, so I, I'll continue doing that. They won't shift until they're scared they're going to lose their jobs. So we help them lose their jobs. The other, um, the, I mean, if they declared now, I would take it with a grain of salt. You know, it would mean nothing because they would still be protecting all their vest vested interests. Um, so there's fundamental work we need to do to get them out. We also need to clean up government for it to mean anything and we need to clean up the media. One, one thing I'm, I've started doing is I've written a letter. Um, I go into any cafe that, that has a Herald Sun there and I say, please don't share lies, please don't share hate and I give some examples. Um, you are keeping, by accepting that free newspaper from News Corp every day, you are keeping that circulation in business, their revenue in business, let's shut them down. So I ask them to refuse it. So people just doing things like that to, to we need, media, you know, Murdoch was the cor a cornerstone of the Libs winning the last election. So. And Brad, just to very quickly, I sadly think the next trigger is not going to be until May 2021. The next elections or 2022. Um, it's slightly depressing, isn't it, to think that. Um, 
Because I honestly don't think this government is going to change. But what I think can, will happen in the meantime and what needs to happen is that groundswell of, of voices. Some, this is where local governments might have, I mean, demonstrating that the transition does, is, not, is actually a good thing. It's, it's, it's about clean jobs. It's about a, it's about a better, cleaner um, way of being in the world. And I'm actually very optimistic that we're at the point now where we can demonstrate that. It's actually, it's actually better. Um, and I think that's our job between now and the next federal election, is actually demonstrating how this change needs to happen and hopefully we don't have an ALP who's so gun-shy and run away from actual proper solutions that we do get that trigger, that transition happening then. I'm mindful of the time and we'll open up to the floor just in a minute. I just want to say, on that note, that Maybe the next step for this movement could be that we branch out even more, like to different professional groups. We've had the doctors declaring. We've had architects declaring. We've had engineers declaring. And I can proudly say, as of today, we now also have journalists declaring. <laughs> journalists declare a climate emergency is now a page uh, where journalists Professional journalists are invited to go and sign as individuals, calling for their union to declare a climate emergency. Union in, in the country, but also the international union of journalists. So that initiative uh, was launched here today. And it's very tiny at the moment, because I'm the only one who signed it. <laughs> but I think it could go places. And I say that as an inspiration. We need new ideas. And now I'm giving the microphone to people. And we'll start over there at the back. Yeah, um, and, and what I'm calling for is, is, of course, comments to what you've heard, but also, please, if you have a new idea, it would be great to hear where you think this movement needs to go. Is this working? Yeah, cool. Um, so my name's Aaron. I'm uh, with a youth climate group down in Geelong. Um, and I guess one of the main things that you guys are coming out with is saying that there needs to be like an emergency mode with um, you know, our activism, um, but I guess the question is, like, how do we get there? How do we get our activism um, to that level so that then, you know, we get the, the benefits from it, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah. Um, uh, Mike Christian, uh, and, uh, uh, Jack Ritchie from the Port Lincoln, uh City Council. Um, I'm a councillor there. Um, the question I was going to ask is just... Um, is a huge opportunity at the moment um, uh, Zali Stegall's bill um, and having each one of us and everybody we can convince as well to actually push and, and push that with their politicians as well so that we get that through because if that's a step before the next election then um, either this government or the next government will come in and they're, they're locked into declaring a climate emergency at that point and we actually then start the, start the steps. It's, it's one, one large step in getting that. The other one is the opportunity for a, um, um, a plebiscite on uh, taking action on climate. Um, now, that is just an easy way to sort of get it across the line in a sense as well, because you get um, probably 80% of the population saying, yes, we do want action on climate change. Mm. Simple yes or no answer. And I can uh, just give you the website again, climateactnow.com.au, I think it was. For, for, for if, if you want to support this, this climate act. Let's, let's move the microphone slowly this way. So, yeah. yeah. Um, 
just building on that, like, where do we go next? I think, you know, the kind of the surf lifesaving clubs, Rotary, CWA, like those, you know, Australia has such a commitment to like volunteering and community. And I think branching into that, uh, particularly some of those groups in regional Australia is just gonna be so powerful. And the basis of what you've started and how it's grown is so amazing. So letting people, you know, not lose sight. This is the biggest petition that ever went to Australian Parliament. That is a staggering achievement. And that itself is evidence that the language, the demand is working and resonating. So I think that commitment for all of us to take that in whatever we're involved with personally is key. And I'm um, a sustainability manager at City of Sydney, so it was really good to hear from you, Brad. But we're also, we had a council's workshop this morning with 170 people there. And really that's looking at how do we collaborate now beyond the declaration. Um, 88 councils represents 30% of Australia's population, mobilising that base, supporting each other to be better, to be faster, is going to be really, really key. Exactly. And uh, just to, a comment to that. Yeah. I first. <laughs> uh, is that uh, we heard the Australian Institute, the Australia Institute has done this poll and they did that in November before the bushfires took off. And, and it came out that two thirds of the population actually believes we should declare a climate emergency and they talked about the war footing as well. Uh, that is an interesting poll at that time. I wonder what it would be after now. It would probably be even more like 70, 80% of the population. So you're right. We have the people with us. The big question is how we get the government in. Anyway. Yep. Hi, Sally from Darabin. Thank you all for your amazing work. Um, my question is, uh, we've been talking about the federal government a lot. Um, I think we can all agree that if we had all the state governments declaring, that would put a lot of pressure on the federal government. And, you know, we have a, a relatively sympathetic government here in Victoria. I'm just really curious, where are we up to with the, the conversation with the Victorian government? I personally asked, uh, a couple of um, months ago, I asked uh, Daniel Andrews face-to-face, uh, -face, and he just said, that's absolutely, there's no way. A uh, very sort of negative response I got from him. Did any other of you have, yeah? Yeah, he actually spoke in Parliament ridiculing his federal colleagues and Labor colleagues for putting a motion to declare a climate emergency in Parliament. Yeah, which is most unfortunate. I think we've got a bit of work to do. They've done a great job with the gas ban. They now have to hold firm with the gas ban under pressure, under blackmail pressure from the, from the federal parliament. But this thing about declaring an emergency being empty words, that's what Dan says. It is so not true. If we're gonna move into emergency mode, we have to be prepared to say it's an emergency and we have to have a gateway. We have to have, to have a line in the sand where we go, it's been normal mode, now it's emergency mode. This is our highest priority. Everything we do is seen through this lens. Oh, we didn't answer the question about mobilising students and youth. Do you want to give us a chance to answer that? Yeah. What was that question? Was the very first one. Very first one. Sorry, could you just repeat your question really quickly, uh, sorry? It was just about um, how do we get our activism to the next level where it's emergency into emergency mode and really like, powerful. Yeah, so um, I was talking with the students yesterday because lots of them um, were talking about um, their principles 
like they were quite um, like nervous to take us straight to their principles. And I said, if you're ner nervous to take us straight to your principles, then what you start doing is start off with getting your whole student body behind you, then get all your teachers behind you, and then, then you can work up to your leadership area. But I also said that I'm um, getting parents on involved. So I think the next step of getting um, uh, students and young people from um, moving to just um, like regular activism to the stage of mobilisation is if um, climate emergencies can't be declared in schools for whatever reason, um, they do everything that a climate emergency encompasses without actually declaring it, whether it be building food forests, um, like pointing out the financial um, benefits of having a self-sufficient power grid, having all this stuff, um, like I was saying to these guys earlier, having an education system that will continue on teaching children um, and young people about um, our, our, our climate um, is really important. That is should be on our list of priorities. Um, yeah, I think that that would be what I would do. Great. Sorry, I, I had a go there, so I'm really shortly on that. Oh, so very time. Um, in Europe, school strike for climate and Extinction Rebellion are side by side. Greta came and launched the Extinction Rebellion. And in Europe, the school strike demands are declare a climate emergency, get to zero at emergency speed. And I, I don't know if they have a people's assembly. I think it was a very powerful moment when the school strikers actually camped outside Scott Morrison's house. Um, I think within the school movement, we need actually all the strands of activism as well, from you know much more low-key to Fridays for Future outside the politician's office to actual civil disobedience. No, for you. Yeah. Is that working? Just yeah. on the subject of um, oh, sorry, kids, kids and young people. The um, you know it was Greta's quote that was just oh, as always fantastic. It's what she said to UK, um, EU to, to the EU, I think it was. Act like you you love your children um, above everything else. And and most people say, well, of course I love my children above everything else. But when you talk about kids and climate, they can't compartmentalise. So they might, they might think of themselves as good people, but when you point out that their policies are going to destroy their children's lives and their children will have nothing to look forward to, they get taken back. And I've seen that politicians being queried on that and they, they start shaking. They cannot deal with it. So that it just throws that cognitive dissonance aside. Um, so I think that that's why the, the kids have been so well. And I think um, kids need to be brave. Like um, parents can sometimes be either really supportive or um, really against it. But I think like um, what Bryony was just saying, showing them that um, what like parents, industries like what they work for and what um, what lots of adults are doing in society is contributing to the destruction of their future. I think kids need to be brave. Um, and I know that hard, like it's easy just to say that, but kids need to be really brave and go out and participate in civil disobedience in strikes. Um, you know, be, be safe, of course, but show, um, show people, yeah, they're like stepping above from just going to a strike and really taking um, more than just action. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Oh, I just wanted to mention um, a good DVD on the Greenpeace website. I forget the name of it, Dirty Coal or something like that. Yeah, it's an investigation into all the links. Um, it was mentioned on the panel um, previously, all the sort of coal and energy. 
coal and energy um, sort of and the lobby groups um, influencing our politicians and the Liberal Party. And it was just quite scary. I mean, not that I want to be sort of negative, but to sort of try and distribute that and just make your friends aware of that because it's quite poignant. It's not just Scott Morrison saying, oh, you know, I'm a fundamental or I'm a whatever he is, an evangelist, and I don't believe. But um, that's quite scary. What, what that documentary shows is the revolving door of how uh, people go in and out from the industry to the government and back again. Um, and maybe there is a point that we have a two-year span now where we should focus on something else while we prepare for the next election. Um, just by way of comment, I just want to say how incredibly powerful you are, the school strikers. And I do believe that all of us um, need to get behind you. I'm Bronwyn from Climart and we've worked with galleries across Victoria for the last seven years to change the conversation in our in the arts sector. We've lost our arts ministry, which is, you know, it's a fundamental tenet of fascism. So, you know, at a federal level. But there is things that make me, campaigns that make me really happy. Um, just first of all, on the school strikers, and we've all got to get behind you, every single group. The AYCC did a report on um, every school in Victoria getting um, uh, solar panels. It costs 176 million. It's nothing. And um, what we need is school strikers to demand this of our education departments. Just take on those things and go and do it. The other one to look at is Mad Fucking Witches. I don't know if everybody knows the Facebook site. I've never written so many letters to agencies after that shock jock in Sydney, thank God. You know, this is where I'm happy when I live in Melbourne because I can't, that man just would send me into calyptions if I lived, if I had to listen to that. But um, you write letters and 450 odd advertisers no longer on that show. I know he's not off, but he's, he's on, um, it's incredible. So if you're reading the Herald Sun and you look at advertisers, write them a letter and say, I'm really sorry, I'm no longer going to be buying your product. And it works. Money. Put your money where your mouth is, really. It's, uh, it's so powerful. Um, but anyway, thank you all for what you're doing. You're brilliant. Um, I don't ask this question to be controversial, but I am genuinely interested. I'm from far north Queensland, and you're probably aware that there's been only one declaration in Queensland. Um, in Cairns, we have several XR groups, Stop Adani groups. We have um, Australian Parents for Climate Action. We have doctors, uh, the Kaha Alliance, and everyone's calling from a for a declaration. Um, and it is using the emergency framing and our community is seriously polarised in a very, very real way. Um, and there has been a lot of discussion about the usefulness of fear, um, which I think can be really useful. But I'm like genuinely interested to know why you think it's not working in Queensland, what you're asking, what we're asking. And, you know, I, I'm asking that as well. I think the simple answer is Murdoch Press. Like, it's nothing like travelling in Queensland and only being able to read the Murdoch press. That's a very large problem. Um, I think there's not the slightest doubt that fear works. Like, that's why every public health campaign uses it. That's why every political campaign uses it, pretty much. Um, trusted messengers may be the missing ingredient. Um, it may be that Ken's, you know, people are not a good messenger to farmers in the area. You need a farmer in the area to go to the farmers in the area. Okay, well, and that, I think in the end it'll work. You know, it may be that they're the last and not the first, and maybe that's just how it is. But 
I think the message that we're in it together because otherwise we're going to die and that otherwise our children will fry. I, I did it with Neil Mitchell, who's probably, you know, Queensland Territory. He's a shock jock in Melbourne radio. And um, halfway through as he was attacking me, I said, I'm doing this for your children too, if you've got any. And at the end he said, yeah, my daughter's on your side. And I said, well, you better get on our side too, Neil. <laughs> we're, we're going to round off in about five minutes, so I'm going to be a little bit harder now with the time. Uh, so, so very, yep. yeah. I, mean, I, I think it's a really key, key question that, that you've answered. And I think it's around acknowledging that people are afraid of change as well. There's another side to fear, and the fear of losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods and, and things. So that's where the other side of this around actually about this transition actually being about new jobs which are investing in these communities to make them part of the transition. These people are not the enemy. They are, we, and then we, there, has, there has to be a really clear focus on that because otherwise we're not going to win this. Um, and, and that's always good to remind and from someone who's in a very latte sipping part of the world, I need to remind myself of that constantly. So just uh, from here on, just one minute max for, for any comments or questions because we have just three, four minutes left. So at the back. Hey, um, I'm Elsie. I work a bit with School Strike for Climate. Um, obviously, we've got a lot of younger students working um, as part of our movement and we're very much working with being inclusive. I myself am quite one of the younger ones. But um, is there a way, because obviously um, this is a climate emergency, but is there a way to phrase it for younger students to make it less... Um, to make their parents not shut down and be like this is going to be problematic or is there a way to phrase that without being yeah scaring them too much um uh yeah i think um the best way for young kids like really like if you mean like primary school age kids to get involved with um or kind of understanding the climate emergency um like at the moment, because of like a lack of a school system based around this topic, um, taking kids to like just regular strikes um, is a really good way to start. Um, if schools don't have a climate emergency but they're climate aware, and I know that's lots of um, lot, lots of schools. Um, I know that schools in uh, high schools mainly in South Australia organised um, sh sh shuttle buses take kids from their school to the strike so that they'd be safe but they could also go and um, share their opinions. I think that could also work for primary schools really well. So um, if, you, if your primary school doesn't have a climate emergency, um, ask them if they can have these events and stuff like that. Um, being able to have the opportunities to go to strikes, make sure that kids are safe. I think parents would approve of that if um, you know, they're not just walking out of school and walking there by themselves, if they're being accompanied by a teacher um, and all that. Yeah, stuff like that. I think that that's a good way to start. Yes, we are living on the stolen land, and um, we are burning someone else's land. And uh, of course, we cannot declare the climate emergency without working together with the First Nations. So my uh, question is to all the panelists. Uh, how are you working with the uh, First Nations? Thank you. We're doing our absolute best to reach out to them and there certainly are really impressive First Nations leaders like Lydia Thorpe who are working very actively with the climate emergency movement. Uh, when we were in Canberra for the first day of Parliament, Extinction Rebellion and a whole lot of climate groups, there were people just working very closely with the First Nations peoples, uh, First Nations 
um, embassy, the tent embassy there. And in fact, some of the Extinction Rebellion people were staying there and we helped plant a um, fruit garden. So yeah, we're doing everything we can and there's a lot of solutions from Indigenous, um, from Indigenous methods. You know, we have to restore the wetlands, for example. That we've taken out 96% of wetlands and swamps and it's no wonder our land is now much drier. We have time just for one last question now because I am going to end on time. Don't forget the seniors. <laughs> Thank you very much. On, the, on a finishing note. That's a really good point. And one of the things I love that we do have in West Australia, we have um, grandparents for Climate Rebellion who um, are doing this amazing job of varying, singing on trains and holding really, really fun kind of fun ways of engaging people. And you're right. And seniors linking with seniors around climate is an absolutely key part of the solution. So this was um, a talk about how what happened in a way when we took the word climate change or the expression climate change and turned it into climate emergency. Have a think about what would happen if we decided from here on also to take new words in such as chaos, right? Climate chaos, that's like the next level up. Because if the adults talk more and more about climate chaos, suddenly climate, uh, the old climate declaration would suddenly seem a very peaceful way of talking about things. And that would maybe be a, a solution to get it into the schools. Thank you very much for attending and listening. We're going back to the main hall now, where it's the final session. Thank you. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. 